Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work. I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Hello, and welcome back to Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with Vanity Fair staff writer Julie Miller. Julie, hello. Hi, thanks for having me back. We've made it to the end of Super Pumped. Uh, Today we'll be covering uh, the finale of that show uh, called Same Last Name. Uh, And then we'll talk about the penultimate episode of We Crash, The Power of We. The founders are falling, Julie, one by one. Last week, we saw the end, or at least the first end, of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Next week, we'll see Adam Newman deposed from WeWork. And then there's Travis Kalanick, who was forced to resign from Uber, though retained a seat on the board, and of course, made billions of dollars before resigning from the board in 2019. So now that we're at the conclusion of this show's version of what happened at Uber and with Travis Kalanick, Julie, do you feel like there was a sense of justice in how the show ended? Did you feel like, okay, like people got where they were supposed to have gotten by the end of this? I mean, morally? morally. <laughs> or anything, I guess. I don't know. I mean, no. I, I did really appreciate, though, in the finale when uh, Travis, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, turns to the camera and he has that moment of like, yes, I'm terrible. Yes, you can call me an asshole, but this is what it took to do this um, I, I did appreciate that. And he, you know, whether or not you want to admit it, you know, I do love Uber. I do appreciate that. I don't have to exchange cash with a taxi driver. So in, in that sense, yes, but it just, it seems crazy given how toxic the work culture was that he gets to walk away a billionaire, but I guess it's the same with, you know, Adam Newman. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I, I appreciated the, the turn to camera saying like, OK, so we've just spent, you know, seven hours learning what an asshole I am. But you love you love my service. You love the ease of it. And, you know, I, I, I typically use Lyft if I'm going to do a ride share because I'm told they're slightly less evil. Uh, um, I know that the corporate culture of Uber has changed significantly since Travis left. But I think the other thing about it is that like something that uh, the showrunners, Beth Schachter and uh, Brian Koppelman, um, told us at the beginning of this podcast, I think the first episode, uh, was that the taxis in New York City, where, where I live and you live, um, the taxi commission was also really corrupt and bad. And so kind of like st- sticking with the yellow cabs is, the, is maybe the lesser of two evils, or maybe Lyft is the third lesser. I don't know. Um, but I appreciated that it brought to mind that conflict. You know, it would be one thing to say, and the horrible guy got his just desserts. 
And that was the end of that company. But that company is something that many of us use all the time, especially when traveling or whatever. So yes, I, I appreciated the sort of ambiguity of that moment. I think maybe one of the t- sort of bigger tenors of this episode, one of the, the points it was trying to mull over was, is it is there any kind of path for ethics in this kind of huge unicorny sort of startup world? You know, um, Travis has this conversation while he's, I think he realizes that, you know, the writing is on the wall and he's going to be forced to resign, but he's still trying to scramble and he's meeting with, you know, his former deputies who are now board members or with Austin Geit, you know, a trusted employee who I believe started as an intern. Um, and then, you know, as the coda tells us at the end of this, like, stayed at the company for a few years after Travis and made tens of millions of dollars. Um, and she's kind of saying, I don't want to hurt you personally, but like things had to change. And she says, you know, something about the new reality, one where the results don't make uh, up for everything that helped to get them. Basically saying, like, we treat people like humans, we try to be ethical, and maybe that's a way that we can all still, or this this world, the Silicon Valley, can still um, be massively profitable, and people can go from garages to billionaires in, you know, a matter of years. Um, did this show change, Julie, how you think of startup culture as a whole? Oh, this is so tricky because this the show was so broy. I guess I guess it was the the 3D version of what what you hear about Silicon Valley. Would you say the same the same thing? It was operatically broy. I've never seen such a broy TV show, maybe aside from Billions or Entourage. This is like the entourage of the startup TV shows. It is. Uh, and, you know, in Entourage's case, all he was doing was making Aquaman and a bad Gatsby movie. But this had maybe further reaching implications and was real. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm sort of stuck on the, the juxtaposition between what Austin says in that scene, I think well delivered by Carrie Bish, the, Bishay, the actress, um, about like there is an ethical path forward that Ariana Huffington tries to set up at the end with the sort of, you know, peace room versus war room uh whether that's kind of lip service and maybe what actually is true is travis's monologue at the end where he's basically like you know who else is an apple an asshole basically everyone else right who built these things that you know make things that we all use all the time i don't know if i believe that if that's just self-preserving nonsense but um it it certainly leaves one the end of this show wondering if we should all, I don't know, throw all of our technology out and go live in the woods. Right. Well, I guess the moral high ground here was Bill Gurley. And I guess that that was, you know, that was redeeming in the end that he he knew that the the corporate culture, the company was no longer a startup. It had eclipsed anyone's expectations and it needed to operate like the monolith it had become. Um, so he in the end is the person who steps up. And I guess that's how it was in real life, going back to the book. Um, it says that Bill Gurley was just tortured by everything going on in, with Uber in those um, couple of years right before Travis left in 2017. He was gaining all of this weight. He was getting emails from other people, other investors, other startup founders who were saying to him, you know, they had read the reports about the toxic culture and they were disappointed in Bill and, and voicing their their disappointment that he would continue to support an endeavor like that. So I, I guess it is heartening to see that he, you know, did did help oust 
oust Travis. It's crazy though that that long Ryan Reynolds life analogy he used <laughs> to compare Travis to the the alien. Apparently that was taken from real life. Bill Gurley did really use that analogy. Um yeah, there is this thing with um with Bill Gurley's like loyalty where he's like, you know, I can't, you know, you don't build him up to just to tear him down, all that stuff. But at the same time, you kind of wonder sort of something he says to Ariana toward the end of this of the episode, like there, you know, no founder is going to trust me again. So was that all he cared about or was he, or is he genuinely like in a human way loyal to Travis, despite all of his faults? I don't know if we're really supposed to know either way, but um, I, I guess, I guess Gurley is still a figure in like investment and stuff. Right. So he's like, he, he, he wasn't completely chased out of the industry because he had the audacity to depose the boy king of Uber, right? No, I don't think it completely ruined him, but this this is probably the investment that Bill Gurley will be most associated with in, in his career. Um, but by casting Kyle Chandler, I just automatically believed that that, you know, Bill believed in in Travis and would have done anything for him. I think that's what you get when you cast Ch- Kyle Chandler, right? Like some sort of loyalty, some tr- trustworthiness. Yeah, but trustworthiness, paternal warmth, a sort of inherent decency, which I think was a smart, that, I mean, that right. makes for smart casting, you know, because we needed, we needed some of that energy in there. Um, and then kind of emerging in later episodes of this season, and really in this, in this episode, um, is the figure of Ariana Huffington, uh, played by Uma Thurman, who has that sort of parental, motherly energy a little bit there's also a little maybe lady Macbeth. there's a little bit of sort of the sly calculator she does i mean she's not on the uber board anymore but she was for a few years after kalanick left and she helped kind of facilitate his ease of transition so what do you make of ariana huffington in in this show's depiction of her does does she strike you as a hero of the story a complicit villain or i'm curious what your take on on i am this portrayal fascinated is. by her i find her so compelling the nancy myers moment she gave us in the kitchen when she's making travis that omelet was incredible apparently that actually happened <laughs> um, oh, wow. so i i am just very very intrigued by her in in the last episode you see her kind of working both sides of the game here she was working with the board members to to form to put together those resignation letters. And meanwhile, she's also Travis's first call after Travis gets the resignation letters. So I just think she's tremendously savvy. Um, Definitely sort of a double dealer. We learn later that she was trying to push her own investments um, into, into Uber. She had some sort of wellness company she was trying to integrate. Um, But I, I think she was an outlier. She wasn't, you know, from the tech world. So it was strange to have her on that board. But as a viewer, I appreciated the mix up. I appreciated the feminine energy in that boardroom. I really I needed that. What did you think of her? Yeah, I because I, 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 I always knew of Huffington from Huffington Post, obviously from my like early days in, in New York media in the mid 2000s, mid late 2000s. And and I always sort of assumed that that was uh, naively, I guess that was sort of that there was a limit to her sort of reach. I was like, oh, she she presides over Web 2.0 in some capacity, her and Nick Denton and a couple other people. Um, 
but then of course no she 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 moved forward from that and was was had her hand in a lot of other pies so to speak and i, I think that helped i guess deepen and complicate my uh, admittedly kind of narrow um perception of her um not in any sort of ethical positive or negative way just like oh ariana huffington has been much more of a much closer to the center of all of this stuff than i had realized previously and i think um i don't know there was a part of me that wished the show brought her in earlier and maybe boosted her character a little bit like we saw more of her um kind of approaching uber from the outside and i i just i guess i was curious sort of what her assessment of it was and um before she got involved and and why she thought that she could do what she ended up doing, which was really move very quickly to the center of things and uh, and kind of oversee this huge uh, sea change. Right. I would have appreciated more of her perspective, you know, more than just those three episodes, even though I know she did come in late in the game. It is interesting, though, because Travis responded so well to her. And I know that they did have this special sort of mother son's dynamic, but I'm just curious what would have happened and it's no point even really thinking about but if there had been other female board members would they have been able to massage the situation a little bit better I yeah yeah and you think about how it it balances or juxtaposes uh travis's relationship with his real mother bonnie kalanick who obviously in last week's episode uh she dies and then he's travis is still somewhat mourning her in in this final episode um and I guess in a way, Ariana, in the show's version of things, I don't know how in the real world this played out, but like, uh, is saying kind of like, look at the difference between the way that Bonnie kind of gave counsel to her son, which was sometimes tough love, sometimes more consoling, but I think always rooted in be the young man that I've known you to be since you were a child. Like, don't don't get too lost in all of this wor- swirl of braggadocio and chauvinism and all that stuff. Whereas Ariana, I think, sees that as just extant fact and is like, okay, so this is the baseline we have to work with. This is who you are. Let's now then make some tweaks to try to, you know, uh, rein you in a little bit or or, or point that energy in the right direction. So basically, I think in this version of things, Ariana Huffington is kind of a a perhaps semi-resigned like pragmatist about like, this is the culture and we can do a little bit to change it, but not that much. I mean, maybe her wellness thing was part of putting a nicer softer spin on this right. whole world. It is know. fascinating though to look back in the real life headlines because when Travis was he was still at at Uber but he was in the middle of just all of these different PR crises. Ariana was out there defending him in the public telling people that you know he started meditating and there wasn't any space at Uber any private space so he was meditating in a lactation room at one point and she was telling reporters that after he came out you could tell how much how much more centered he was. Um, it's it's just interesting to see that dynamic play out in in the real world. But I just I'm not done with Uma Thurman's Ariana. I want her to walk on yeah. to a different show. I want her to pop up in different universes. Yeah, yeah, she'll be the Nick Fury, uh, just sort of <laughs> gliding among this connected universe. Um, I think what's something that's so fun about her is that like. This is a big accent. It's a real performance in a show that unlike, uh, you know, The Dropout or We Crash, which also has big voice work and, you know, these kind of star turns, everything else in Super Pumped, despite Quentin Tarantino's voiceover and all that, feels more sedate, I guess. 
at least in terms of the performance. So I think Uma Thurman adds that theatricality that, um, yeah, does at least alter the energy of this very brash kind of macho show. Right. And I love the scene between Uma and Kyle Chandler where Kyle is like Bill Gurley is saying, you know, I don't understand you. Can you just speak directly? And then Uma sort of does her faux American and and says, you know, you want me to do a straight shooter thing? And she kind of dumbs it down for him. I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, speaking of performance review stuff, like how did Joseph Gordon-Levitt strike you? I mean, this episode but kind of really throughout the show. I, I thought in that final monologue, we actually got to see him sort of act in a way that he, he's been doing a lot of yelling, a lot of fast talking previous to that. But, but I don't know. It was the first time I think the performance really became a capital P performance. Uh, what is your assessment of JGL throughout all this? Right. It's so difficult because he has to play this, this, unlikable guy and he does do a lot of chest puffing and that sort of thing i think he did the best he could with the role it's just so hard because you see especially travis's that final chapter at uber and on paper it reads so tragic and so sad and you feel so bad for the person you're reading about when you see that his mother died in this horrible boating accidents. And then at the same time, he's dealing with being ousted from the company he built and has been with for over 10 years. But then you you go in and you you see the three-dimensional Travis, and it's just so hard to have that, that sort of sympathy. But I agree, he was bringing the most performance to this last episode. And also, it, it felt like finally we were getting a ton of action. We were getting those sort of succession, like board member jockeying scenes. Um, so I, I appreciated that adrenaline, but I wish he would have been given more, I guess, range to work with. Yeah. But I don't know what those scenes would have been. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think something that I appreciated about this show from the outset was that it begins in Medias Race. It's like, we're this is not a show about the founding of Uber. It's not about Travis as a young man, as an aspirant, you know, entrepreneur like The Dropout has been and We Crashed is to some extent. Um, at that same time, by now that we are at the end, I kind of do wish we had that roundness on the other side of things. Like, I wish that we'd met him before he was Travis Kalanick Uber. You know, there's a lot of talk in this episode about like, you're going to have this last name until you die. And they don't, they mean literally Kalanick, they mean literally girly, but they also mean billionaire, as Ariana says. And they also mean Uber as kind of like surnames for these people. So I guess I kind of wish we knew Travis before he was so closely tethered to Uber, because that would, I don't know, maybe complete the picture a bit. Right. And he's just so closed off. Even when we get that scene with his brother, um, where the brother's asking for money, it's after his, his mother's died. And Travis just like humiliates him and is just could not be colder. So, so right. I, I wish we got any sense of vulnerability. Did we get any glimpse? And his vulnerability, Travis's. I mean, a little bit. He has that scene with Ariana where he's kind of gazing out the window and basically saying he's like forgotten, like his mother's teachings, kind of right. Like he, he's kind, oh, he's right. kind of like berating himself. But that also kind of felt like a performance. Like he was thinking, well, this is probably what a woman wants to hear. Even a woman is kind of steely and on his side as Ariana was. Um, so I don't know. I think you know the first scene of this series is him basically saying, "Are you an asshole? You have to be an asshole." And then it ends with like, "I'm an asshole." So like, 
did we get anywhere with this character? I don't really know. Uh, we saw what <laughs> happened to him, but I don't know if we necessarily saw what, th- what that, uh, if that changed anything in him. And he's now on to, you know, another startup venture that is, I think the coda says, valued at $5.6 billion or something. So, like, he's just chugging along, like always, I suppose. Right. We didn't see much of a transformation. We saw everything. We saw Uber transform. Yeah. But we didn't really see Travis. And it's hard to like really feel the dramatic stakes of this when in that sort of, you know, here they all are now catch up at the end with like the title cards and the pictures of the real people. It's like, oh, there he is at like next to the the bell at the Wall Street Stock Exchange, like when the company (laughs) IPO'd after he'd been, you know, resigned as CEO. So like, the consequences for him were I, to him significant because he lost control of the direction of the company. But from my outside perspective, it's like, but you made two and a half billion dollars and you were still on the board for a couple more years and you were at that IPO thing and, 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 and. So it just doesn't feel like there was that much of a, it wasn't a fall from grace. It was like a stumble from one high plateau to a slightly lower one. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really... I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Which might bring us actually to We Crash kind of hopefully seamlessly because um, we are starting in this episode, uh, The Power of We, to see Adam about to fall off that same small cliff. You know, um, the writing uh. is beginning to be on the wall for him with this, um, what is it, S1, right? Uh, which is basically the kind of prospectus that you would send out to potential people to buy your stock once it goes public. Um, right. And, and I go ahead. Yep. Oh, no, I love just seeing him down and you see him drag these Louis Vuitton roller bags out of the Google corporate headquarters. I've never seen someone drag Louis Vuitton, you know, <laughs> yeah. suitcases looking that sadly. That's my only interjection. And it kind of echoed the in the first episode where we see him trying to hawk the like the, the collapsible heel shoes. Like he has all his wares, you know, that he's you know, exactly. clattering around the city. And now it's a nicer, nicer suitcase. But um but yeah, but I think this episode also, and the whole show we crashed, does also ask the question of like, was there any ethical way to do this? Like, is it is it, did it have to get this far on this kind of braggadocious energy? Except in the case of we crash or we work versus Uber, 
there really was no there there. And that's when we, what we really see emerging uh, most potently in this episode is like, you know, he and Rebecca make up from their fight and then they put their heads together as only the two of them can, can and come up with this complete bullshit thing that's all woo-woo language about the corporate culture and also in the doing is really sneaky about how much money they're actually making versus how much they're losing and all that stuff. So embedded in all the sort of silly goop adjacent, you know, wellness talk is an actual potential from some angles fraud, right? Right, right. But it is tricky because you're not seeing them explicitly talk about fraud. You're, you're seeing them. It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around because you are, I don't know. I, I do believe their love story still, even when they're, they're together and she's breaking it to him that they've been lying to him about the cappuccinos. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do believe the love story. Yeah, because they, they, they're the only two who speak this crazy well, language right? bizarre. yeah like like what they what 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 seems to always bring them back together in episode after episode of this show is like they have a sit down and then one of them says some preposterous you know meaningless nonsense and the other like it's like yes exactly you know like <laughs> they get each other even though there's not really anything to get from our outside perspective right right and i guess there's just we get you know if there's anything we've gotten, it's there's a, some sort of necessary delusion, maybe, to be this successful, and that that we've definitely gotten right. that message over and over again. But that delusion can only take you so far, you know, because especially when you're going in public, which is something that Adam didn't want to do because he knew that that would bring in too many. Well, he didn't want to lose control of his own mad vision and you know help support Rebecca's mad vision. But I think he also knew on a technical level, like if we bring more eyes into this, they're going to see that this is a little bit of a house of cards or a lot of a house of cards, um, which is why this figure that we see really emergent in this episode, Scott Galloway, is so interesting. I don't know. Do you remember, Julie, that we've met Scott before on this show? No. So we, he's the guy. Vaguely, tell me. So he's the guy Sorry. who's interviewing him at uh, J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley in episode two. And he's like, I don't know what you just said, but I wish I'd said it first, that kind of thing. So I guess in real life, Scott Galloway was kind of taken with Adam Newman when he did that little fireside chat in the like, like well earlier in the WeWork story. Um, But by so the, 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 the contemporaneous period of this IPO is 2019. But as early as 2017, uh, Galloway was making videos for Business Insider saying that WeWork is the most overvalued company in the world. So he saw this coming a ways out, um, and he there's a quote that he uh, used in one of these videos. He says he uses the term frothy market a lot, um, but he calls WeWork a frothy market of consensual hallucination, <laughs> which like feels very accurate. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's, he, he's, a, he's an interesting guy, Scott Galloway. He's, a, I think, a, a New York University professor, but he's mostly just kind of like a speculator on markets and startups, and he's had his own companies rise and fall and and succeed and not. And um, he uses very like flowery language when he writes. And we see him writing a blog post that would much like uh, Susan Fowler's helped take down Travis Kalanick at Uber. This blog post that he published in 2019, um, a couple months before the scheduled IPO of WeWork really helped turn the tide of perception against the company. Um, so if you'll indulge me, I want to uh, 
read you a selection from this piece, uh, which is basically called like We Work What the Fuck or something. Oh my god, I have a hand to my heart. <laughs> if you said I would like to read you a piece, I can't wait. It's just a paragraph. So so he writes, amongst other things, I mean, this piece is full of um, ornate language, but um, in frothy markets, it's easy to enter into a consensual hallucination with investors and markets that you're creating value. And it's easy to wallpaper over the shortcomings of the business with the bull market's halcyon, cheap capital. WeWork has brought new meaning to the word wallpaper. This is more reminiscent of the cheap marbled paneling you'd find in Mike Brady's home office, paneling whose mucilaginous coating will dissipate at the first whiff of a recession, revealing a family of raccoons or the mummified corpses of drug mules. <laughs> oh my God. So he that knew is... that this was all bullshit. And really what he's doing uh, in that piece, which people should read, um, I don't think I agree with everything that Scott Galloway believes in, but like he's basically saying like, this is a company that rents office space. That's it. Don't believe any of this other stuff. And that kind of company is much more subject to different whims of the economy than what they're advertising themselves as. And I know that we've seen on this show other people kind of hint at that. Cameron Lautner, the guy from Benchmark. But like, I don't know. It feels like this arrives with much more of a declarative shock than it does for other people. Um, does it feel like the show has done a good job of like painting the, the map that this is like this is the beginning of the end for the Newmans. Yes, but it also just, it continues to confound me that there's, Adam Newman doesn't possess like the feeling of shame or embarrassment or, you know, I keep waiting. I kept waiting in the episode for him to kind of freak out that if this pu company goes public, like they're going to see everything that he's done with this money, but he, I don't know, doesn't, doesn't, isn't capable of that human emotion or just really doesn't think that he's done anything as has done anything wrong. Um, but, but I do believe that he's at that low point, you know, if anything from that, that sad scene of him dra dragging those Louis Vuitton roller bags. What do you think? Yeah. And then I, I think that, that um, the show has done a good job of highlighting just as Galloway has in his writing, the comic absurdity of some of what we work or the we corporation was doing um, while also treating it seriously you know it's it's right you know like like i i don't know rebecca continues to be i think the most fascinating figure on the show i think the show probably agrees with that assessment um and you have rebecca who has finally achieved at least one marker that she had set out for herself albeit somewhat recently to to build this school well a school of thought or whatever she calls it and yet she's dissatisfied with that right like we see her like watching the kids dance and teachers play tambourines and then she's got notes for how the tambourine was played and this pitch this person's pitch is off and all this shit so do you think there's in this show's version of rebecca is there any way that she would ever be happy with anything or she's just always going to want more well i love that you brought this up because in my notes it says in all caps Anne hathaway complaining about tambourine um i i don't know i i agree with what you and chris said last week in that she just wants to be center stage. She's that theater kid. She's been in so many different people's shadows between Adam and WeWork and Gwyneth. I, I don't know that she's going to be happy. I, I don't think it's possible because we see her inside this billion dollar bubble and she has a full staff there waiting to make her her green juice and she's not happy. She wanted a whole cell phone tower moved next to her, you know 
however many million dollar place in New York. I, I don't I don't think so. Would do you do you have a different thoughts? No, I mean I I think I think the kind of scary thing about the way that Rebecca is portrayed uh, on the show, particularly within the the workings of the company, is that it brings to mind, I'm sure managers you've had that people listening have had, which is like people who don't who are in way over their head, don't know what they're doing on like a big structural foundational way. And so all they can do is micromanage. You know, all they can do right. is be pissy about the tambourine playing and about right. the aesthetics of the trees in the office or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or the, the these woo-woo mission statements that don't actually mean or say anything. Um, and, and I think that while recognizing old managers I've had who, and that's really bothered me about them, I can't help but also put myself in, and I think this is credit to Anne Hathaway's performance, I can't help but put myself in those shoes and really feel the panic of that. You know, am I being overly empathetic in, in thinking that, that Rebecca is at least dimly aware that this is that she's kind of lying to herself and others. Ooh, I love how deeply you're feeling for Rebecca. Well, it's no, just like I, it's I, just so I, sneaky, and I'm like, oh god, like you're going to be found out any minute, and it's just tense and scary. <laughs> right? No, no, no. I, I do, I do feel like she, she feels that that sneaking suspicion, but she just she manages it so coolly. She, she always has that sort of armor up. Yeah, because she's got, you know, I, I like the scene where she comes home and she's still mad at Adam. And, and he's like, I'm not asking you to sit here as your husband. I'm asking as a CEO. We have to talk about work. Uh -huh. And she's like, OK. And so they, they, they kind of pretend that they're taking and putting on these different hats, taking off and putting on. But like, they're not really. They're the same hat. Right. There is no right. hat. <laughs> I don't know. There's no hat. Yeah. I also love the the moment. I think it's this episode where they're her communications person is pitching her on her nest next uh, like PR opportunity. And she's talking about how she just got off this Vanity Fair cover sh shoot. There's no way she's going to do a podcast. And then we smash cut to her <laughs> saying hello on this podcast. <laughs> it was so good. Yeah. I, her, 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 I mean, it's a funny like. Uh, I don't know the way we think about things. She's like, well, you don't go from Vanity Fair to a podcast. I was thinking CNBC, and it's like, is CNBC really any better than a podcast? I mean, I, I don't know. Podcasts feel bigger now than CNBC does, but um, I guess that's not the, how she saw it. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind as we head toward the end of of the Newman's involvement with the company, and that'll be next episode, I'm assuming, uh, is that right before the IPO, so kind of right as we're seeing this stuff take place in this episode, Adam Newman was selling off about 90% of his WeWork stock um, to the uh, tune of about $700, $750 million. Um, so they were going to be fine no matter what. And that is one of the big frustrations that a lot of people observing, like Scott Galloway and people you know, more closely involved with the company had, was that like they, the Newmans built themselves the goldenest of golden parachutes and then got out right before everything went haywire. Um, so it's so any empathy I have for Rebecca in this episode is kind of mitigated by that pretty swiftly. But then we also have to turn to, and I think this episode really shrewdly does, these other employees, you know, these young right. people who think that they are about a month out from becoming millionaires. And of course, they are not going to be. Um, what did you make of the, the way that these younger employees were brought into this episode? I thought that was really well done, because like you said, they, they thought this was like a group thing. They were, it, it was we, we was the enterprise, but then we see them go hang out at Adam and Rebecca's 
gorgeous New York residence and they kind of realize, oh, this is a little bit different. I, I love that whole sequence that sort of ju juxtaposed where they finally saw, you know, this gilded, amazing, incredible place where that we were had built the Newmans. Um, and, and the bag, the whole, the, was it a Celine bag? Was it a Birkin bag? That the, uh, I don't know. I should, we should, I should know as someone who works at Vanity Fair, but I, I'm going to go with Celine. That, if that was your first guess, then sure. Right, right. <laughs> but it's a $22,000 um, no, thought... handbag is the point. <laughs> right, right. I thought that was done really well. What did you think of that yeah, scene? I, I like that we see them kind of trying on the Newman's clothes metaphorically. You know, like, right. okay, so now we're going to be like this. We're, we'll someday be hanging out in our own fabulous triplexes in Gramercy Park and... Uh, we'll be taking private helicopters to the Hamptons and I'll be, you know, I'll be buying this $22,000 handbag um, because, and this is something that's, that Galloway has mentioned in his writing. He's like, I don't blame the, the, the employees because it's impossible 30 days out from an IPO when you're scheduled to become a multi, multi-millionaire to you, you start spending that money in your head. Of course you do. And maybe you start spending it actually in real life. So yeah, we see Miguel, uh, he's going to get this Lichtenstein. He's wisely decides against spending $42 million on that. And he instead gets a piece of art that says, come and get it on it. C-U-M. Oh, so he's right. still being kind of an idiot. Um, but uh, he maybe too, after searching his name on the uh, S1 and sees that he's mentioned six times to, I think Newman's like a hundred and Adam something mentions, you know, he's like, Oh, maybe I'm being pushed out of this as well. Um, and it's sad. I mean, I, I'm less sad for Miguel because he's known the Newmans for a long time and, and probably should have been a little bit wiser about how this is all going to play out. He's still made plenty of money from all this, by the way. But these younger employees, one of whom we've tracked since summer camp uh, early, early in the season, who you know, initially was going to quit, had all these problems with it, but then, you know, took another sip of the Kool-Aid and decided to stay. Who really think that all of this incredible, you know, labor they've put into this for crazy hours and, and I guess relatively low pay is going to pay off. But the sort of tragic last montage of this episode is like, oh, no, they're they're about to be screwed with, along with a lot of other people, um, which, again, partly was the uh, ode to this this piece that Scott Galloway wrote that a lot of outlets picked up. When I, I spoke to Elliot Brown, who co-wrote The Cult of We um, with Maureen Farrell, they both write for the Wall Street Journal. And I asked him if the Newmans felt any sort of regret over, especially the employees who didn't get these payouts they had been told they would. And he said that at first there was a sense, you know, among Adam's friends that he was actually feeling some sort of remorse. But he said that if you were to ask Adam's friends now, they would probably tell you that was a very fleeting moment that he's since moved on. So it's, it's just, I don't understand the, the conscious, the moral that you don't feel any sense of guilt over this. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I think that, you know, I don't, I don't know where you were in these days, but like when I was in New York in the late aughts, I think I had not friends, but an acquaintance or two who worked at Tumblr and uh. Uh, really a friend of a friend who was the receptionist there. And I think she had moved up maybe a couple rungs past that, but like was like employee number, you know, under 10 probably at the company. And then when Yahoo bought Tumblr, she made several million dollars. And 
I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Why didn't I apply for a job there five years ago? And, and you know, when I was at Gawker, like you could buy shares in it. And then that obviously didn't really pan out years later. Um, but there is that always that temptation. And I think, you know, that that's sort of like you're, you're if you're in anywhere close to tech or anything kind of like it, you there's that that proximity where you're like, if only if only I was just in that room instead of this one. Um, and so these three kids who have, we've seen, you know, they've been constants throughout this season who are always there in the office, either in the background or in the foreground, you know, doing things. Um, you're kind of like, well, no, 30 days out. Yes, n- that that's fine. Of course they, of course they would let themselves believe it finally, you know, um, which is kind of the grand tragedy of it. And I, I think that anyone like Adam Newman and Rebecca, to some extent, who knows that it came that close and still, you know, sold all the shares and then ran with their tails between their legs. I think now they're in Florida. Um, like, e- even if there was a moment of guilt, like, that's not enough to to cover what, what they did. Like, th- I think these people are, you know, <laughs> are bad first and foremost. And I think this, right. the end of this episode really drives home that there actually is, like, real human collateral damage to some extent in this. Right, I know, and they're now in Florida, which happens to have no capital gains tax. I, I will see. We'll see what happens in this next chapter for Adam. But I, I do appreciate that we got both from Super Pumps and uh, We Crash. We got the perspective of the employees. I appreciate that both shows sort of tried to balance that out. Do you think they both did? Yeah. Were there more perspectives you would have wanted to see from either show? Well, I think in Super Pumped, you know, they have that sort of montage scene where Ariana is like, all right, I'm going to listen to what the employees have to say. And it's her sitting down and all of these women, one after one, you know, the other coming into this conference room to basically, in, in the, you know, in theory, tell her w- what their experiences as women working at Uber were. But it's done over music and we don't really know what or under music rather. And so we don't really know what was being said. And I probably would have liked a little bit more uh, fleshing out of specific cultural problems right. at, uh, for women at Uber were. Um, whereas in this show, I think they've done a good job on We Crashed of introducing us to that culty side of it, showing a couple of these employees their their qualms earlier on that then were sort of smoothed over by the rapid growth of the company, all the promises made. And so, yeah, anyone who's expecting a quick a quick cash out based on stuff that was pretty provably ephemeral if existing at all um yeah like i there's a little bit of like well you should have been a little more careful but again they were so close and if the wheels had fallen off the bus six months earlier a year earlier they would have been silly for spending their money in their head or literally but in this case it was like yeah i guess splurge on the helicopter because everyone's telling you you're about to make 30 to 50 million dollars in a month um Uh. you know and so that's like even if i can never relate to that kind of money woe it's still like it's it was snatched right out from under them at the last minute and but it wasn't for the newmans unless they count losing their company as uh, a a greater loss than financial ruin right right what would you have bought what would you have spent that unwise amount of money i always said that if i like won the lottery or something i would like email like 20 friends and be like all right um i'm gonna pay your salaries for the next two months we're going on a trip around the world or something so that, oh, I love that would probably be the first thing. Um, or I would like buy an apartment, I guess. I don't know. What would you do? I, I like the travel version. I, I would I would get some family together, friends, travel. 
yeah, I, just I'm like, trying to think of something splashier. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, buy a ticket on Richard Branson's Moon Rocket. I, I don't know. No, I, I don't want to. I don't want to die in space with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, but uh, yeah, it's so. That's the thing is like, and I think that that's what this show and this episode gets so keenly. You know, I love that they're playing the Saint Vincent song at the end. This kind of mournful goodbye to New York in a way. But I think what they're really saying is a goodbye to this dream. Um, that there is something so intoxicating. There has been for the past decade and a half longer, maybe so intoxicating about that sort of digital gold rush or the we work, you know, the kind of the, whatever we work represented a sort of lifestyle shift that could also be massively profitable for people who are only smart enough to get into the ground floor or see the potential in it. Um, and, and I have felt by the sidelines of that, as many people have and been like, geez, if I'd only saw it to invest in that or had the money to invest in anything um it could have been i could be on a beach somewhere but like but also at least in this case and certainly in theranos's case like it was it was predicated on that dream sustaining people well past what made sense you know like none of these people they worked there they should have known at least in in some intuitive sense right that like how could we be making money from this you know, or do you believe right. that these people were so walled off from the financials that they were they being lied to? I don't know. Right, right. Or did she did Adam really believe that they were going to profit off of that? I don't know. It's it's sad. And then you, you do get a scene, even though Adam is in the, these days where, you know, he's very much on the decline during that meeting where they're meeting with the different banks for the valuation of the company, you see this like flash of brilliance in his negotiation. And you kind of think back to episode one and what he could have done if he had had applied this brilliance with more of a functional, I guess, vision. Well, yeah, because it was a good business. You know, um, maybe the pandemic made it less of one, but there would have been a few years there where, you know, if they'd just been modest about it and not tried to have it be valued at $63 billion. And, you know, uh, Scott Galloway also talks about Peloton, a vastly, he's like, it's a good company. It's just not worth $8 billion. Like, I think we just, people get so obsessed with scale and these kind of massive unicorn uh, once in a generation payouts like that, um, they get they get really glamored by it. And I feel bad for the younger people who did nothing but be born in the late 80s or early 90s and sort of inculcated into this culture. Uh, you know, I, I, many of us obviously chose different paths in our lives. But like, I don't know, I, I think that this show at its best is really about a kind of a real snow job that was done on the minds of a lot of people, you know, 45 and younger. Right. What are you hoping to see from the finale? Are you hoping to get any sort of closure? I want to see how they the this show imagines the Newmans now. You know, there's right. been a little bit of press about them kind of lurking at parties in Florida, I think, and and you know maybe trying to talk about some sort of comeback. I I think I did read something where they were sort of very blinkeredly like, "Oh no, everything's fine. We're gonna come. You know, we're gonna we have new projects in mind." Um. So. But I would, I would like, you know, because this show has done such a good job of imagining the interior lives of Adam and Rebecca, I just want, I just want, I want like a good portion of next week's episode to be focused on what happens after he's kicked out of the company and the IPO flops. Yeah, I, w- I would like them to have, you know, not, I don't want anyone to suffer, but I would like them to have a moment of reckoning where maybe they realize what's, yeah. what they've done. 
some not. repetition or, or, or variation on the Alicia uh played by America Ferrara kiss off to Rebecca where she was like you have no shine of your own you're a vampire basically oh, so like good. I want I want someone or someone's to lay that into both the Newmans um because you know as this episode most potently gets across they do deserve it you know they fleeced a lot of people out of a lot of money based on nothing other than their own I guess ego and sort of messianic belief in um something that at root was just renting desk space to people. <laughs> oh my gosh. Could Ariana Huffington have saved this? I'm, in my mind, I'm wanting to, to like converge everything. I, I want her to step in there, what she would do with Adam. I don't know. My fantasy well, What fiction. we need, I think, is uh, some kind of off-Broadway, like public theater, Frost-Nixon two-hander with Uma as Ariana and Anne as Rebecca, where it's just them having oh. a conversation for like 90 minutes. I would minutes. love that. Yeah, just I would kind love of that. Playing. I would take ten minutes. Okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ten minutes is fine. <laughs> um, all right. Well, until then, uh, Julie, thanks for talking with me this episode. Um, until the finale of all of these, or, or well, I guess we're done with super pumped. So, until the finale of We Crash, Julie, where can people find you? At Julie W Miller on Twitter. Well, I am at Rylaws on Twitter. If you have any questions for us at this podcast, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. This episode, as ever, was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. And until next week for the finale of Still Watching, Downfall of the Startups, happy investing, but careful investing. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>